Hi, Steve Albrecht, and welcome to the Library Service Safety and Security Podcast. Uh, this podcast is sponsored by Library 2.0 and produced by the founder of Library 2.0, Steve Hargadon. You can always get more information about Steve Hargadon and Library 2.0 and me and the webinars and podcasts and articles I do for Library 2.0 at library20.com. So my topic for this half hour is irate visitors. Not, not people that come in or are upset, but those patrons who have a mission to meet with the director or meet with the leadership in your library and want to air their grievances and, and get some stuff off their chest. And these people can be anything from irritating to dangerous. And there's kind of a wide variety of behaviors inside their um, movements towards getting with the director and, and airing all their grievances, which we need to pay attention to. And so I kind of categorize these people differently compared to a normal visitor who just says, hey, you know, can I speak to the director about issue X? And it's just a, you know, a question about something which may be solved by a leadership conversation or the, this person's you know, an elected official or an appointed official or an attorney or friends with somebody on the library board where their desire to meet with the director is routine, normal, and casual, and no big deal. Then there's this other collection of people that are irate, and they have a, a cause. They have maybe a cause about content, or they have maybe a cause about a program, or they want to speak specifically with the library director about something they feel angry about, which they, they feel shouldn't be happening at the library. And their behavior is completely different when it comes to their desire to have this meeting. What makes them irrational sometimes and erratic and sometimes even threatening is they use the guise of the meeting or the purpose of the meeting to get in the door, to get in the room with the library director, and then they start this rant. And sometimes um, the library director will be pinned inside their, his or her office with this person while they go on about all kinds of things that, that are you know, nonsensical and perhaps coming from mental illness, and it can be quite scary. So I've worked on a number of these cases where library directors, library leaders said, how do we carefully, politely, and with compassion and empathy, dissuade this person from causing a scene in the library floor at the counter because they cannot speak to the director right away? And it kind of goes back to a larger picture that I have, which is a safety and security guy. I've worked on lots of situations. Um, I'm not a big executive protection guy. I did that stuff in my early part of my career. I don't care for it. It's super stressful. But I've worked around enough elected officials and appointed officials and, and dignitaries and celebrities and leaders and things like that where getting access to the person just because you ask is not what happens. And so, you know, I've had this lot of conversations with mayors and board of supervisors and, and city council members where they say, well, we want access to the public and the public wants access to us. And so they should be able to come in and have a meeting with us. And then after there's some horrible incident where they get, you know, paint thrown on them or they get assaulted or they get threatened by this person, then they realize maybe that's not the best approach and we need sort of a screening, filtering, um, assessment situation where everybody that comes in doesn't just get to walk over and speak to an elected official. And so unfortunately, if that process is that we will oftentimes use, and this is because of the design of how this works, is the reception person for that particular elected official, or in this case maybe for the library leader, library director, the receptionist or the administrative person, administrative assistant, who handles phone calls and incoming mail and messages and things like that also has to screen these people and screen them in a, such a way that's, that's, yes, I want this person to speak to my boss or no, I do not. And so I give a lot of credit to those young men and women who oftentimes are at the point, uh, kind of the, the, the writing point of these people coming in and have to say, I need to be part-time psychologist, part-time threat assessor, 
part-time security guard to say, is this person sane and reasonable and, and, and able to have a polite, normal, appropriate professional conversation with my boss, or do I need to screen them out? And my argument most of the time is you can tell pretty quickly. Uh, when they come in and they're sort of wild-eyed and they have a collection of goodies in a box that they want to, you know, papers they've been collecting since the, you know, the 30s, they want to show the library director, that's a warning sign. Well, most of the time when professional people come in to have a professional meeting or, or people come in to have a conversation with a library director, it's pretty easy to decide, yes, this person seems reasonable and appropriate, and then you look over in the other end of the spectrum and these folks are just, just wild-eyed. So they come in oftentimes with boxes of stuff, They've collected things they've cut out of the newspaper. They have clippings and photographs, and they have proof, quote, unquote, proof in their mind that something horrible is happening. Uh, there's a conspiracy theory thing going on with them, or they believe the library is involved in some kind of nefarious projects or nefarious situations, which is never true, of course. So I'm reminded of a case, and this is an example that will kind of give you a sense of where, where libraries can go wrong when it comes to dealing with this population. As limited and small as it may be, they still can be disturbing. Not everybody is like this, but the ones that are can be can be challenging and and a little a little frightening. So years ago, before I started even doing library work, uh, I was doing threat assessment for this library in Washington State, and they were receiving from a patron a collection of all kinds of odd correspondence. And this is the pre pre internet days. Um, it was it would be these envelopes, these eight and a half by eleven envelopes, and they have all kinds of weird scrawls written on them, arrows and flames and and hearts and hearts with arrows through them and broken hearts and broken arrows and blood drippings and that this person had sketched on all over the envelope. And all kinds of odd phrases, stuff from the Bible and stuff from poetry and stuff from literature, just, just written on every inch. And they open it up and there's Playboy uh, photographs from Playboy magazine and there's clippings from the newspaper and there's stuff from Time and Newsweek and various other newspapers and the Washington Post and the New York Times, all about various and sundry things which have nothing collectively to do with anything with the library. So this went on for a span of months where this person would send just, just acres and acres of paperwork, folders, you know, stuffed into these manila envelopes shipped off to the library director. And so the library director made a fatal mistake, not fatal life-threatening, but fatal as in behavioral mistake with this guy, which is to write back, this is pre-internet of course, and write back and say, thank you for your submissions. I don't understand why we are getting this stuff. It makes no sense to me. Please stop sending it. Well, guess what this guy reads? It makes no sense to me. I need to explain it. So he doubles down, sends even more stuff, more Playboy photos, more sketches, more odd envelopes, more things from the newspaper that he clipped out and put in there. Clearly some pretty significant mental illness. You know, the conspiracy theory stuff out of touch with reality, the sense of, of, kind of entitlement that he owes the library an explanation. And, and this sense of owing the library an explanation about why he sends all the stuff means I gotta send more stuff. It's clear that they don't get, get me and they can't figure out what I'm all about so I need to send more, more items. In which case he just doubled and tripled down and stuff started showing up every day. So the library director, bless him, was trying to be polite to this person and that wasn't necessary. There's a concept in my work in threat assessment called the magic number. And it has to do with stalking and inappropriate contact, contact by people and, and those situations where a person keeps pestering somebody in a leadership position or maybe somebody they have a love interest with or somebody who's in an elected position where they say, if I pester this person enough, he or she will answer me. And oftentimes if I keep trying, maybe I'll get what I want. So here's a perfect example. 
we have a young woman, and so, let's say it's a library situation, and some guy comes in and he frequently, constantly, all the time asks her out, and she politely at first says, no, I, you know, I have a boyfriend, or I'm married, or I don't want to do that, or even if I'm single, no thanks, I'm not interested, I, you know, I don't date people that I meet at work, no, no thanks. Well, this guy hears none of that. And so this young lady, you know, trying to do her job, and this guy just keeps pestering her and pestering her. You know, will you go to the movies with me? Will you go out for coffee? Can I buy you a drink after work? Can we go walking with your dog? Bup, 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 bup. Finally, and this is the mistake, right? Out of exhaustion and, and thinking and hoping perhaps that by saying yes to this guy once, she can say, okay, we did it enough. That's it. We don't have to do it again. So I'll agree to go to coffee with you. So, so he says, okay. Let me go back to my, my uh, journal here and realize it took me 143 times to get her to go to coffee. That becomes the magic number. When he says, I have to ask her at least 143 times or more to get her to go to the movies or get her to go to dinner with me, then he, then he knows what the magic number is. Now, for her part, she could either say, yes, I went on the coffee date and it was horrible, I'll never do it again, or I changed my mind at the last minute and canceled the coffee date, which, which I would tell her to do. <clears throat> persistence is not always a good thing in these types of situations. It's a creepy thing sometimes. And the other part is that she has now set the magic number for him for any other kind of opportunity that he wants with her in terms of trying to get a date with her. So the, the answer and the solution to the magic number is zero. And I see this in my stalking cases and the stuff I worked at in, in domestic violence investigations and stalking cases in the old days, which was if this person who is the, the perpetrator, the threatener, the, the person that wants something from the other party is persistent enough so to get to the person to finally give in, to finally cave in and do something they don't particularly want to do, that becomes the magic number. Well, in my world, the magic number should be zero. First off, um, no, no amount of phone calls or no amount of begging or no amount of pleading to see the director if you're irrational and out of touch with reality should, should be the magic number. That number should be zero. What we need to do is set up a protocol, a process, where we say, let us screen every piece of mail that comes in or package, because sometimes these folks create boxes of stuff which are nonsensical and have odd items in them, and sometimes they send long and laborious letters about various and sundry conspiracy theories they think are somehow related to the library and the library's existence, or this desire to meet face-to-face -face with the library director because they've looked them up on the internet and know who they, they are and they have their email address or their telephone number for their direct line to their desk and they want to have this meeting about some important content which they want to talk about in the most you know urgent way and again I'm not saying these people are necessarily dangerous but they certainly have an agenda and there are two agendas really one is the obvious one which is I'm upset about this content, I'm upset about these programs, I'm upset about these books or DVDs, or I'm upset about what you allow to come into the library or these things that you, these speakers you bring in, whatever it happens to be. And then there's the hidden agenda, which is I'm furious at the library employees, I'm furious at the library director for allowing these things to happen, and that can be more, more concerning, more sinister. So the obvious overt agenda is, is anger, and the hidden agenda sometimes is just rage at, at you know, you're a government official, how dare you do these things? How dare you, you go against my own values and morals and ethics about what I would appreciate not having in my library, et cetera, et cetera. So, so they're generally irate. They're generally um, irritating and irritated, right? They're oftentimes entitled to have this opinion. I pay taxes. I pay your salary. I'm, I've been a resident of this community for 28 years, that kind of stuff. Uh, they can be highly impolite. And they can be forceful to the point of, of, of like stalking. It's like a, a repeated behavior over a span of time that, that puts people in fear. 
And they may not make threats to harm, but their persistence is, is really irritating. And it can, it can move from sort of, isn't it interesting how this person's quite eccentric to, isn't it interesting how this person won't take no for an answer? And, and seems to, and I've had this in my cases a lot, seems to know how to butt up against the edge of doing things that are illegal. They don't make threatening um, statements or they don't write down threatening things in their correspondence or the things they leave or try to leave with the library director because they know they could get arrested for that type of stuff, especially these days. <clears throat> but they have a sense of, of impropriety and they have really poor social boundaries. And they do this not only at the library, but with lots of other places. They may do it with the bank they go to. They may do it at the, at the movie theater in their community that they're upset about something. So it's not like the library is particularly being singled out for this type of, of treatment because it's just the library. It's, it's sometimes this is what's on this person's list of places that they're angry at in their world, but also that they use the library because oftentimes they see things in the newspaper or they see things on social media or on TV about library programs that they're upset about. So one of their hallmarks is they need to quote unquote prove to the library director or to library leaders why they are correct. And they will do this with the scads of correspondence and articles and things that they have written and, and th photographs that they've put together and, and they've cut out of newspapers or magazines or printed off the internet or, or printed at home. And they will create, you know, full reports for you to have to read and scrutinize every word. And oftentimes it's just nonsensical ramblings. And so this, this desire to provide proof to the library director about how their point is correct and, and the library's is incorrect will oftentimes um, show up when this person wants to deliver some kind of report or manifesto or box of things or some padded envelope full of all kinds of stuff to the library director. And so I think the, the, the reception people, the administrative folks, the people that, that screen the, the library director's calls and, and emails and, and things that come in that, that are of, you know, coming in from the community that don't come to the library director's personal you know, work email, things like that, will attempt to be polite in the beginning, and they will say the wrong things in these situations. They will say something like, okay, I'll make sure she gets it, or I'll make sure that he gets it, the library draw. I'll put this on the director's desk. That is a mistake. What we say to these people is, okay, um, thanks for dropping this off. We'll see that it gets to the right place. Not the right person, the right place. We'll see that it gets, are you going to give it to the director? We'll see that it gets to the right place. We have a protocol for how these things are, are reviewed. And so, so uh, I understand what you're trying to say here, what you're trying to deliver here. We have a protocol for that. We'll see that it gets to the right place. And you need to be a broken record about that and not, not overpromise and say, okay, well, I'll put this on the director's desk. And then they just double down on, well, did you get it? Did you read it? Did you review it? Did you go through it? And they just pester the, the director even more. So it's really difficult and sometimes in these situations to placate or satisfy these people because they're unsatisfiable. They're oftentimes really, really <clears throat> socially immature and feel that the world is out to get them and that their way of fighting back is to, is to poke as many fingers in as many ways as they can into leaders and elected officials and appointed people and politicians and, and people that they, that they disagree with. And so sometimes this, this sense of, of wanting to get under the library director's skin by giving them this, this irritating collection of manifestos about all these conspiracy theories it starts with this attempt to deliver a package. And what I tell library staffers and administrative people that are, that are supporting the director in terms of reception and, and, and you know, um, duties where they're trying to kind of screen this person out is not to overpromise. And not to say things like, well, I'll make sure the director gets that and I'll make sure that you know, he or she takes a look at it and then calls you right back. Don't, don't, don't say that. <clears throat> what we're trying to say is, 
um, um, we'll, we'll, we'll make sure that this uh, gets an appropriate review. And, and uh, thanks for dropping it off. And uh, we'll contact you if we need anything else. And we'll say things like, is your contact information here? Okay, if we have any questions, we'll contact you. So, so uh, this will be under review. And you know, th thanks for coming in and, and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. So we don't encourage more stuff. We don't encourage this person to try to pin down the library director as saying, well, you promised that you were going to look at this stuff, or someone on your staff promised that you were going to look at this stuff. That's not the way it is at all. <clears throat> so I, I look at these situations as a sense of entitlement they have that I can come and disrupt the library director's day. I can come and disrupt the library administrator, the, the reception people. I can come up and, inter, you know, and interrupt their day by being provocative, by being larger than life, by being sort of challenging, by coming in and, and, and creating the sense of a, you know, a hailstorm of you know, there's conspiracies and bad things are happening and I need to address this and I want satisfaction. And these people can be really, really tiring because they don't seem to have an off switch. And because, and this is sort of the <clears throat> interesting part here, uh, because some of them have some familiarity with being talked to by the police, or talked to by mental health clinicians about this behavior over their lives. This is not typically a new thing. It didn't just happen last week. They've been dealing with these kinds of irrational thoughts and conspiracy theories and things for a long time. They may be, uh, ha have been in a, a, a therapeutic uh, treatment situation with medication, in which case they were stabilized, or, but they went off their medications because <clears throat> the side effects, and also they felt like they were, quote, cured or healthy. And then, of course, the reason why they go off their medication uh, is because they're not uh, cured or healthy. And the reason that they felt better is they stayed on their medications, but it's really difficult to have that sort of conversation with them, which is you need to be on these medications because they're balancing your chemicals in your, in your head in terms of creating a smoother, easier life for you to lead. They, they de-evolve back to this difficult life, the conspiracy life. <clears throat> so they are oftentimes very cognizant of, of mental health conversations. They're very cognizant of the law. Um, they may know laws about trespass and threats and things like that even better than the cops do. And I oftentimes, um, when I have encountered these, these people, there's a degree of paranoia in their, in their conversations and a degree of paranoia in their writings and their communications, which is oftentimes really to their detriment because what happens is they predict their own demise. And so, so they'll say something like, I, I bet if I keep bothering you about this issue, you're going to call the cops on me. And we do. <clears throat> right? And then therefore, it reinforces the fact that they predicted their own, their own, their own problem. And so their paranoia oftentimes is quite accurate. You know, I bet you're going to try to have me arrested. And you know, sometimes we do, or a restraining order, something like that. They will have predicted that. And it's uncanny sometimes that they'll have the knowledge to be able to say, I bet this is going to happen, then it happens, because they know that what they're doing oftentimes is either, is either illegal or could be illegal if it escalates and gets to the point where it's, it's breaking the law. So these people are not, they're not ignorant. They're not stupid. They know uh, things about things. They spend a lot of time on these issues and oftentimes have more knowledge about them than other people, you know, the library people or even the cops do. So managing these cases sometimes requires some help. It may take a, a community effort here from, from advice or support from mental health clinicians, advice or support from law enforcement, advice or support from local leaders who may have engaged with the same person. Um, I refer to this in my work as a threat assessment team conversation. Again, these people are not necessarily dangerous, but they can go on forever sometimes 
until they're distracted by some other event and then they switch their target to somebody else. I've had them focus on real estate agents that they saw on bus bench ads and on the side of a bus. I've had them focus on lawyers that they saw on billboards. I've had them focus on news uh, media anchors, personalities that they saw that were in you know photographic advertisements around town. They switch uh, targets oftentimes quite frequently. So the threat assessment team process is where we bring a variety of safety and security stakeholders. Could be from the from the mental health community, could be from law enforcement, could be from social services, could be from um, uh, the city or town where we have elected officials, uh, where there's a security function in, in that conversation to say, what do we do about this person? He continues or she continues to bother lots of people across our community, and it's, it's problematic. It's, it, it's moved from this person's eccentric to this person is is really monopolizing a lot of our time and there seems to be no end in sight and they're getting more and more progressively angry. <clears throat> and in my threat assessment work, what I am frequently looking at is when this person runs out of an audience and runs out of, uh, of someone to hear him or her and runs out of um, people that will, will sit and be patient through their message, sometimes they escalate their behavior. Not always, but sometimes they escalate their behavior. So what we want is a group conversation to say, what's the best approach with this person? Do they have a caregiver? Uh, are they, have they, do we have any sense that, that there is someone in their family who can intervene and say, look, you need to stop doing this and stop pestering these people at the library? And so I use this kind of uh, a team-based approach. You know, I, I've had cases where the person was a veteran and we got the VA involved and managed to get them some care through the VA uh, psychological services and therapy services. I've had cases where family members came from out of town and said, you know, we've been trying to get this person to come live with us so we can get them stabilized and back on their medication, things like that. That, that sometimes works. So oftentimes I will look to these stakeholders in the community, law enforcement, psychological services, you know, social services, to say, you know, do we have experience with this person before? Has he done other things or she done other things around the community? And what's been our best approach? What is the solution for what this person is doing to get get them back to a a reasonable pace, you know, out of this sort of manic um, um, energy about stuff that's that's oftentimes nonsensical. So it, it kind of goes back to the larger picture of of a process which I have talked about in my Safe Library book in the appendix. It's a visitor policy. I feel strongly about these things that we've been talking about to this point in blogs and podcasts and articles about. Nobody should be able to walk in off the street and walk right up and have a conversation with the library director without being screened. And the screening just means what is this in reference to? Uh, does, this, does the director know you or, or, or have had conversations with you about this issue before? Is this the first time you've talked about it? Do you know the director personally? I mean, things that you might just say as a way to say, is this person a friend of the director's who he or she knows and would be no big deal to set an appointment? Or is this person a total stranger? Or is this person reasonable? <clears throat> not not erratic in their behavior, and the director may need to do some research or have staff provide some information before he or she can have a conversation with this person because they need a little backstory about about what the person wants to talk about. That's perfectly fine. But this idea that you should be able to walk in off the street and walk right back and speak to an elected official or an appointed official or a library director, I'm against that. I, I understand that it's a public job and the public's right to access, but I have seen far too many cases where really eccentric, um, irrational um, um, potentially dangerous people have managed to get in behind the locked doors of the facility and talk to people who are afraid to speak to this person by themselves uh, in a situation where, where, you know, the door is shut and they're ranting and raving and they have no way out of the room. It's not a great, it's not a great uh, thing to happen. So I like the idea that just says we have a, with all visitors, sir or ma'am, we have 
just a few questions we need to answer before we schedule an appointment with the director. <clears throat> if you'd like to email me some, some thoughts that you'd like to share with the director, I can share that with him or her. Um, so that we set up a little bit of a screening process to say, what is the context of this conversation? What is the content you know, going to be? What, is it, what will it look like? Does the director have knowledge of this person and or the issues? Is there a sense that this person is in touch with reality and is not, not um, here to threaten the director or, or, or threaten the facility? Can we look at these things in sort of a brief, polite, careful screening process to say, this is what we typically do. We do this for everybody that comes in. And the library director can certainly override that and say, oh, I know this person, and you know, I talked to him yesterday, and it's fine, put the, put the call through, or let's set an appointment for them to come in at, at his or her discretion. But what I'm looking at is a way to filter out those people whose behavior and conduct is nonsensical. And not only is it nonsensical, but it, it's, it's disturbing. And this idea of, of a polite, careful <clears throat> screening process that we do for everybody, we're not, we're not playing favorites you know, based on appearance or anything like that, just saying this is what we do. Unless, unless you know the director or the director knows you, or unless the reception staff, the administrative staff has previous contact with this person where they know them to be reasonable in a usual professional conversation, then it's fine. They go right in. But if not, strangers go through a process. And that's the way the world works these days. We don't just, we don't just let people wander around and, and talk to people in a, appointed, elected, um, significant positions. We just don't do it anymore. There's just been too many tragedies connected to that, that type of free-ranging. And I know what elected officials say. This person's a voter, and they're entitled to come in and speak to me. And I say the same thing. Mr. Mayor, Ms. Council Member, um, uh, Ms. Board of Supervisors member, we have a process before you speak to this person and you'll thank me when it's used correctly to screen out those people who can be threatening to you. And that's not what we want. So think about a visitor's policy which uses some careful, polite screening processes to make sure that the director is speaking to somebody who is, is in touch with reality and is not threatening or is not designed to hold the director hostage in his or her office while they rant and rave about some program they don't like. Create a system where you can quickly identify those people who is known to the director, and, and you recognize emails, phone numbers, names, things like that. The director can help with the screening process. But if they're strangers, then it goes into a discussion with the director or other senior staff members about what does this person want, what is their agenda, hidden or otherwise, what is the main issue that they seem to be wanting to talk about, have we had experience with this person before, positively or negatively, then we'll make a decision as to whether or not this person could meet with a director. And in my book, um, I would say to, to this person, the director uh, does not have time for, for meetings. Uh, he or she will look at whatever you create an email. And here's an email address. We give them a generic email address like, you know, library at libraryohio.gov um, or something like that, which doesn't go directly to the director. We can look at it and screen out those, those emails. This person doesn't fill the director's email, personal email or professional email um, box with all kinds of rantings and ravings. So what I learned from Gavin DeBecker, who wrote The Gift of Fear, is that we need to be in charge <clears throat> of how people um, get access to our elected, appointed uh, leaders, uh, the people in, in leadership positions, and we need to have a sense of control over the messages that come in. We don't have to give the director um, every box of, of photographs and ramblings and writings that somebody brings. We don't have to. We can have somebody else look at that and decide whether it's relevant or not. We don't have to have the, the director look at every single email from conspiracy theorist <clears throat> who wants to explain why certain things did or did not happen. Those can be screened as well. They don't have to go to the director's attention. So, you know, it's kind of like the president. You say, 
The president doesn't doesn't screen uh, his, his mail. Secret Service does. The president doesn't screen his phone calls. The Secret Service does. The president doesn't <clears throat> set up his his um, visitor meetings. He has staff members to do that, and they've all been the people that are meeting with him have all been vetted as being appropriate and reasonable. So it's kind of the same thing on a much smaller scale, which is we are creating an environment where the director can focus on his or her activities without being distracted by the fact that this person's trying to send them, you know, 150 emails or, or send boxes and boxes of stuff, which can be a little bit disturbing when it starts showing up in your office. So a screening protocol, a messaging email, generic email protocol for people that de- demand the, the director's email address, and, and a way of looking at things that get dropped off and, and delivered that are supposed to go to the director with an, an eye towards is this reasonable and, and, and appropriate or is it nonsensical and is it rambling. And so that same conversation we have with this person is not, I'll make sure this goes to the director, that's wrong. You say, I'll see this gets to the right place, and we screen it and look at it before we give it to the director. So I'm a fan of this of this process for the irate um, visitor, not necessarily the irate patron, that's a different thing, but the irate visitor who demands to speak with, with the library director. There needs to be a, a filtering process before that happens. So my thanks to the producer of the Library Service Safety and Security Podcast, Steve Hargadon, certainly for more information about Library 2.0 and for me and the podcasts and webinars and blogs that I do for Library 2.0. You can contact me or Steve Hargadon at library20.com. If you want to send me an email message about some library safety or security or service issues, you can do that at askdrsteve, that's A-S-K, askdrsteve, D-R-steve, at library20.com. Thanks a lot, everybody.